The UN Security Council is due to... The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. This is, uh, reporting this morning, the language has been watered down to a suspension of hostilities in the hope of getting backing from the United States. Uh, international alarm for Gaza has mounted as citizens in the area are suffering from continuous bombardments, food and water shortages, mass displacements, displacements and, of course, horrendous injuries. Joining me now is Barry Andrews, Fianna Fáil MEP, who's just back from the Rafa crossing. Barry, good morning. Good morning, Pat. Now, why did you go and with whom did you go? Well, we, well I went with uh, three other uh, MEPs from uh, Sweden, France and Spain. Uh, we we're all members of the Renew Europe group, 100 MEPs in the centre of the European Parliament. So we went to examine the delivery of EU assistance to Gaza. Uh, we've heard various different issues that have been arising in terms of customs clearance at various ports in Egypt, uh, obstacles being put in the way of the delivery of aid uh, at the Gaza border and also to uh, express our desire for an immediate ceasefire. Our group within the European Parliament are uh, very clear on that. Um, So that was the main purpose of the visit. Um, It was done uh, in 48 hours. We arrived in Cairo. Uh, We we, we travelled across the Sinai. um, How far is it from... Cairo to the Rafa crossing? It's it's, it's seven hours, uh, but that's because there's multiple checkpoints, military checkpoints throughout the Sinai uh, because it's a disputed territory uh, and uh, it's very, very difficult. We, in fact, were the first parliamentarians to get permission to go to the Rafa crossing. Uh, The Egyptians are now in the position, I think, where they're anxious for international um, politicians to have a look at the delivery of aid and they're comfortable now with making sure that people can see what's happening and the efforts that they're making. Uh, the Egyptian authorities have struggled with the scale of what's required here. Uh, the Egyptian Red Crescent have insisted on doing all the logistics work, but they have no uh, experience of doing something at this scale. Yeah. So the NGOs are getting a little bit frustrated. Problems at Port Said with the uh, vast amount of humanitarian aid. It's being treated the same as other trade uh, with customs difficulties. So it has to line up with everything else. There's no kind of special lane for humanitarian aid to get through. We raised this with the Egyptian authorities in the NGOs and the UN agencies raised it with us. So we raised it directly with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in, in Cairo and they said they're fully aware of the bureaucratic problems at the ports and they're uh, assured us that they're going to uh, deal with it as quickly as possible. So we've seen on television the pictures of the Rafa crossing and we see them from the Egyptian side, if you like. Um, you're there, so you can look at the the, the vista beyond. Yeah. What is on the other side of the Rafa crossing? Well, what's on both sides? What infrastructure do the Egyptians have on their side and what can you see on the other side? So... Uh, well, first of all, the infrastructure, there, there is a 12 kilometre wall that goes from the Mediterranean Sea to the uh, Israeli border that divides Gaza from Egypt. Uh, it's a very high wall. There is some smuggling and trafficking across that wall, but it's a very difficult uh, uh, obstacle for anybody to get through. Uh, so where the gate is, um, is, is, as far as we were able to get, uh, if you've travelled another 200 metres, you're still in Egyptian territory and there is a processing hall there where many of those that are uh, allowed to leave Gaza are processed. They can spend uh, many hours in this hall waiting to get through. And this is Egyptian We're still in Egypt at this point. Now, we weren't able to go up as far as the hall. But beyond the hall, there's a no man's land. And then there is the, uh, the equivalent infrastructure on the Gaza side. So essentially from where we stood 
to where you'd be standing in Gaza is about one kilometer. Okay. So that's the uh, and that goes the whole way along the twelve kilometers between Gaza and Egypt. So uh, what I expected to see there was you know a hive of activity. Um, almost chaotic scenes of people moving back and forth, of trucks moving back and forth. But it was incredibly quiet. It was surreal how quiet it was. Where the trucks moving? They weren't. They weren't moving. That was. The, this is the issue. So as we drove towards the Rafa crossing, uh, we passed hundreds and hundreds of trucks that were simply parked up. All of them stacked uh, up with uh, humanitarian supplies, with food, with uh, shelter items, with medicines in cold storage. Uh, where, where the cold chain is so important. So there was massive, massive uh, queues of trucks just waiting to be able okay. to get in. But there are serious obstacles being put in their way uh, by the bureaucratic requirements uh, on but the Israeli it, side. On the Israeli side? Correct. Because so presumably for, they want to make sure that nothing coming in has armaments hidden uh, well, well, it's know, not deep just in that. the cargo. That, that is correct. So they, they have a, what's called a dual-use list of items which they say are capable of uh, military use, but they won't share that list with anybody. So uh, these humanitarian uh, consignments are being packed onto trucks and they then go from uh, Al-Arish, which is about 40 kilometres south of Rafa. They go from there to uh, either Karim Shalom, which is in in Israel, for verification checks for this dual use check. Or they can go to a, another place called Nitzana a little bit further on, a, a, a lot further on. And if the Israelis decide that there's anything on that consignment uh, that is rejected and can't be verified or doesn't satisfy their dual use list, it has to go all the way back. Uh, to El Arish, which is about 100 kilometres from Kerem Shalom. It then has to be completely offloaded in El Arish, reloaded again and brought back for verification uh, to, uh, to, to Israel. So that's one of the, that is the main obstacle. But it, nobody being, knows what's on in this In your view, list. are they being bloody minded or are they being extra cautious? I have to say that I, I tried to be careful about the the way we looked at this. And it's not just this dual use list, but when you add in the other obstacles that are put in the way, it's impossible not to come to the conclusion that the Israelis are deliberately frustrating the humanitarian effort. Um, so, for example, they won't allow trucks to go into Gaza and go in as far as the distribution centres in Gaza. They have to stop at the Rafah crossing and then be offloaded again reload it onto trucks inside Gaza and then go into distribution centres around Gaza. So the, 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 with political will uh, and deconfliction, these trucks could go all the way to distribution centres in Gaza. So that's the second obstacle apart from the dual use issue. Also, uh, from Rafa to Karim Shalom, where the verification takes place, is a single lane country road, essentially. And there's no way the two trucks can pass each other. So it is a third barrier to uh, the delivery of aid. So you know, I've been at supermarkets with busier truck activity and deliveries. And on the other side of this gate, you have 2.3 million people who are really um, to the point of starvation, now, frankly, and, and, and violence is breaking out uh, about the distribution of food within Gaza, according to in, the NGOs. In Gaza itself, at, at Rafa, you know, a <laughs> kilometre on beyond the, the, uh, the second uh, area of security, um, is there a city of any kind? Is there a town of any kind? Um, yeah. So where, where are people locating themselves? Well, there is a town called Rafa. And then further on, um, you know, you're, you're getting further into Gaza. But, and there are hospitals along this coast, uh, along this strip, the other side of the 12 kilometre barrier. 
And we spoke to people at the Rafa crossing about the military activity, you know, whether they'd heard bombing, whether they'd heard gunfire, whether they'd heard um, any, seen any drone activity. And they say it happens all the time. It's constant. And we spoke to some British embassy officials that were waiting for people to come through. And they told us that they stay in El Arish, which is 40 kilometres further away, south of Rafa. And they can see the windows shaking from the bombing that happens in or around the border area. But they've also observed that when there are international visitors like our European Parliament delegation, uh, the military activity subsides and it resumes after. So somebody from the ICRC was there uh, just uh, two two days before us and 30 minutes after their departure, uh, the, the bombing resumed. So it's it's practically also impossible to deliver humanitarian aid in those circumstances. So it all adds up, I'm afraid, Pat, to uh, an unavoidable conclusion that the Israelis are deliberately frustrating the process. Now, the truckers themselves, they're stuck at the crossing and some of them will have to make that journey to have verification and so on. Uh, what kind of facilities are there for them and what kind of guy would want to drive a truck under these Circumstances. Well, they're, they're not prepared to go further in because the Israelis won't cooperate with deconfliction. So there are, there are very few facilities there. We got out and had a look at some of the trucks and uh, we walked up and down the queues. I mean, they're very basic facilities, but these are all aid trucks. They're not on the commercial side. So if you go back to pre-October the 7th, um, there were about 500 trucks would have gone into Gaza every day. Um, up to 80% of them were commercial. So they were brought in for uh, private markets by private operators and 20% were aid trucks. Now they're all aid trucks. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things the UN agencies emphasise to us is that they're anxious to see uh, commercial operators come back in uh, and, and be allowed to get into Rafa so that commercial markets can resume. And that will require major efforts by UN agencies about cash transfer to individuals, to vulnerable families on the other side. But I'm, if, I'm afraid it feels a long way off. The only... Um, Light here is that Karim Shalom has been opened for the delivery of aid. So this is a second crossing into Gaza, uh, but it's far too early to tell whether the other obstacles which remain, whether they can be addressed so that the actual delivery of aid can increase. Um, If, if, you know, people get money uh, and if some sort of trade and markets can resume, um, what currency do they use? What's viable? Uh, well, the Israeli shekel, shekel. is what's used. Um, um, and uh, I'm not exactly sure how the cash transfers work. When, when, when I was in Gaul, you know, uh, traders were involved in re- recouping uh, the, the vouchers that would be received uh, and they were uh, settled uh, subsequently. But people were able to use... Uh, cards that were charged in markets in in Syria when we operated there and I presume the same system Mm. operates. Now, on the Egyptian side of the border, uh, is there again a Rafa town? Uh, There is a very small settlement there, um, but the main hub is Al Arish, which is about uh, 40 kilometres further south from Rafa. Now, they didn't uh, allow some injured people out from Gaza. You went to see some people in hospital. Yeah, well, there's there's two medical facilities we saw. One is the main hospital in El Arish, and it was a very difficult visit, to be honest. And we also visited a French naval vessel where there's a field hospital. Uh, and we were, again, the first parliamentarians to be able to visit this field hospital. They had 40 patients 
Um, I mentioned on the radio the other day that one of them was a 14-year-old girl who lost her leg in a missile strike. She was operated on in Gaza, uh, but she suffered an infection as a result of the operation. So she was allowed to leave Gaza with her mother and other members of her family. And she went to the French naval vessel where she was operated on a, uh, a second and a third time, where unfortunately the amputation that was below the knee then had to be uh, unfortunately, uh, almost a complete amputation of her leg. And she was a, I mean, a beautiful girl, 14 years old. And, you know, she was smiling the whole time. It was really very touching and you know, very sad because you're looking at suffering, but you're also looking at incredible resilience. You know, and yeah. it's, you often hear it's a lot about what you can endure rather than what you can inflict. And uh, it's clear that there was a high degree of endurance. Uh, and then in the other hospital then, there was the same scenes. You know, this is the same hospital, by the way, where the small, uh, where, where the babies came over the the border, uh, you know, for in the without incubators. Yeah. You see those scenes of these premature babies. That's the hospital that we visited as well. Uh, the the 14-year-old the girl, you know, is the whole conflict in microcosm because there are many more people mm-hmm. like her who have suffered catastrophic injuries and who may or may not be getting help. Uh, I heard Mike Ryan of the WHO this morning talking about of 36 hospitals, I think there are only seven functioning in Gaza. Yeah, and, and most of the hospitals were in the north. Uh, there were only small numbers in the south uh, and now everybody is in the south and so they're not specialist hospitals. They don't provide, um, for example, uh, you know, cancer care or anything like that. So... Um, it's, it's really impossible to imagine the suffering that people uh, are, are enduring. I mean, we all, we've heard the figures about the number of people that have been killed, um, 10,000 children since the 7th of October, uh, but 50,000 people have been injured, um, most of them with real life-changing injuries, most of them children. And uh, again, in the hospital in El Arish, we saw the trauma in people's eyes. You know, there was one patient whose leg had been amputated and he was pleading with the doctor to be uh, discharged to Turkey so that his leg could be reattached. You know, so you'd, you're looking at, we're listening to this conversation um, and, you know, the fear in this person's eyes, you know. So the trauma is something I think is going to really uh, hurt in the years to come, um, you know, in such a short period of time. Is the EU now at one in terms of its attitude to the conflict and ceasefire? I think the EU is is evolving into a much more coherent position. It was very, very divided at the beginning when, uh, you know, the Israeli flag was put on the Berlamont, uh, where there was absolute intransigence around the idea of calling for a ceasefire and a cessation of hostilities. Um, gradually, member states have come to the position that it does require a cessation of hostilities. It's very clear that while Israel has a military strategy, there's no political strategy. And you can ask everywhere and anyone, and nobody knows what their political resolution is. And there's no point in having a military strategy without a political strategy. I think European Union member states are coming to that conclusion. In the European Parliament, uh, we had a vote on a, a call for a ceasefire and it was passed by an overwhelming majority. So I believe that the EU is coming to a much more united position, but it was very badly divided at the beginning and it was exacerbated by our, uh, one of our commissioners from Hungary who uh, declared that there would be a suspension of development aid into the West Bank, as if that had anything to do with it. Um, but that was walked back. Uh, he was uh, forced to... Um, admit that this is the wrong, it's something that he couldn't do unilaterally and uh, aid was reviewed. But we've increased our humanitarian aid fourfold. Uh, the EU is the biggest donor to UNRWA. 
And so I think there's an appreciation that the air bridge activity that we've done as the European Union in bringing supplies from places like Copenhagen, Ostend, uh, Brindisi, uh, that had been really appreciated by the NGOs and the UN agencies on the ground. Uh, the, the the problem for the EU obviously is the, the <coughs> history of Europe and the Holocaust and uh, Germany and Austria particularly um, feeling that they owe some sort of solidarity to Israel no matter what it does. Yes, and, you know, we all bring our, uh, you know, our national memory to these discussions. Mm. And for a long time, Ireland was very pro-Israel in the 20s and 30s when uh, Israel was seen as fighting for their identity against the British in the Palestinians. That was something that Irish people identified with. But I think after 1967, it began to look like something we were familiar with, which is occupation and, and maltreatment of, 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 uh, of Palestinians, which has gone on since then. So I think each member state has a certain, um, you know, national memory and a national neuralgia is really that they bring to this uh, issue. And when we've had debates in our group in the European Parliament, young Germans, uh, young German MEPs, you know, they say, look, this really, we can't take another position. We have to support Israel. And there, there would be very forthright in that and very clear. And it's, it's understandable, you know, that's where they're coming from. Uh, but I think um, that intransigence hasn't aged well. And I think there's now a, uh, and obviously Germany has come out looking for a ceasefire as well, mm. which is very, very welcome. Barry Andrews, uh, Fianna Fáil MEP for Dublin. Barry, thank you very much. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.